Hi, this is Mark Brady. I'm the pastor at Anchor Faith Church in Valdosta, Georgia. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast today. We believe it will bless you and minister to you. I get ready to receive a word from God. If you would, go with me to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I, um, I debated, in fact, earlier in the week I was planning on turning this service over. Uh, We've got just such great staff and leadership here at this church. Were you all blessed last week with Pastor Chris? Amen. We're just so thankful for our team and and everyone here that I know is just sitting on ready and uh, available at at any moment. But as the week progressed, and um, it's been a long week um, for us, but I know it's been a long week for our world. It's been a long week processing and trying to understand a lot. And I typically uh, try to refrain, you know, if if I'm up here only communicating to you what the news is communicating to you, then it actually do more damage uh, and more harm than help. Um, It's not my job to tell you about what I think our president should be doing or what I think should be happening in our world and so on and so forth. And so I typically leave that to those experts to communicate on those topics. Um, but I have watched a, an extreme deterioration um, from a hospital room and from being worn out physically. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm tired. But I wish I could just tell you that I was just tired simply from being woken up about every three hours uh, and sleeping on what they want to call a bed. Um, but there, there's more weighing on my heart today. And if, if I can, just speak to you as your pastor. If I can, just share my heart with you. Um, we'll see how it comes out, but... I believe there are some things that need to be addressed uh, from the church and not that we're reacting or responding. I had someone ask me, so what are you going to do now? What are you going to tell your church? Well, I'm going to tell them what I've always told them because we preach the kingdom. And the kingdom is the answer. Any struggle you see in this world and any, any deterioration, you know, we can't really honestly um, be that surprise when the world responds like the world. But I think the thing that's gotten me this week is when the church has responded the way it has responded at times. And again, I'm not talking about our church specifically. All of us individually are in different places, spiritually, different places with our walk with the Lord. And it's always been uh, my heart and my urgency as a pastor to see you walk as deeply and closely with the Lord in the kingdom life that his word defines for us. That's, that's the only reason why we're here. Our only benefit from this whole thing is your relationship with your father, period. I get nothing else out of it except the joy of watching you grow deeper in your walk with the Lord and coming out of things that want to bind you and keep you and walking in divine kingdom freedom. That's our purpose. That's our intent. That's why this church exists. 
But my heart is heavy, and, you know, this won't be one of those amen preachy, you know, shout-me-down type words. I, I believe that this will sink home, sit home, hit home for a lot of us today. Um, and I want you to allow these words to be seated deep down into your soul and into your heart. Um, because the reason why I'm here today is to deliver this word. I could have easily handed this off and said, man, just give me another weekend. Let us recuperate a little bit and get back to it. But I just felt compelled we needed to be here. So John chapter 9, John chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, as he, Jesus, as he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. As he was passing by, he's just passing by. You know, Jesus did more on accident than a lot of people do on purpose. If you read the chapter before, He's actually being mocked and persecuted, and they're actually ready to take his life right then and there on the spot. The Pharisees and religious leaders are like, we're done. We've heard enough from this guy. This is blasphemy. He keeps saying he's from God. He keeps saying that he knows God more than we know God. He keeps saying that he is God. He keeps saying that God is his father, and our father is the devil, and that we're, uh, you know, he's the father of liars and lies, and so that makes us a liar. And he keeps saying stuff like, before Abraham was, I am, and all this weirdness. He wants us to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. We're done with this guy. They're ready to take him. And it actually says that his hour had not yet had come, and he slips through the midst of them. So Jesus here in this moment is actually on an evacuation plan. He's actually trying to get out of Dodge. He's actually trying to avoid what is not yet his time to take on, and that's dying for the sins of the world. He is on an escape route. And as he's hustling to get out of this, out of this crowd, out of this mob that wants nothing but to kill him right there on the spot, as he's passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. He saw a man with an ailment. He saw a man with a deficiency. It doesn't tell us this man's name. It doesn't tell us what this man looked like. It doesn't tell us where this man came from. It doesn't tell us what this man's education background was. It doesn't tell us what this man's income status was. It doesn't tell us anything except it defines him by his deficiency. It defines him by his ailment. A man blind from birth. And his disciples, his disciples asked him this. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They, they see a man ailing. They see a man suffering. They're with a man that they know has the power to heal the suffering and heal the ailment, yet for some reason in their humanity, they first go to his deficiency. And they want to find a reason. This is just humanity where it's at. We see failure 
we immediately want to find fault. We see failure and we immediately want to pass blame. We see shortcoming and we immediately want to highlight, well, how did you get there? What did you do? How did this happen? Where does this come from? They want a reason for his ailment. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. In verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. Now watch this. This came about. Now, now, you know, we get asked this a lot of times as Christians. I'm sure you've either asked it or have been asked it. Something seriously tragic in your life happens. Someone that is close to you dies or you get a horrible report from the doctor or the banker. And our mind goes to, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, a lot of times we want to point to the devil. Well, we live in a fallen world. I mean, just in the last couple of weeks, my wife and I had someone approach us with this question. They lost someone close to them. Why did my husband die? Why would God take my husband? And we have these formulated answers that as believers and as Christians, we come up with and we say, you know, this is a horrible place. There's death in the world. There's sickness in the world. It's a result of sin. There's a devil. He's the God of this world. And those are all true statements. The moment Adam and Eve sinned, deterioration was the earth's only hope, was the world's only future. Separation and deterioration apart from God and apart from Jesus. But look at Jesus' answer. He says, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, he would have been right to say, well, let me tell you about the history of mankind. Let me tell you about what Adam and Eve did. Let me tell you about this, this enemy of mine, Satan. And he doesn't even point to that. He doesn't even give the devil any headline here. Rather than pointing to the past, he points to the future. See, everyone else is trying to find a reason. And Jesus shows up with a resolution. Everyone else wants to find a reason for the ailment. And Jesus says, I only want to discuss with you the resolution for the ailment. Well, I don't need to be concerned with how it got here. I don't need to look at this individual in their ailment and in their struggle and in their trial and in their deficiency, and we don't even need to go down the path of who did it, who caused it, where did it come from. He's not even blaming it on the devil. He's saying, my God, my Father has a plan to solve this, and I've got a solution. We can see this man healed. We can see this man whole. And I think Jesus is revealing to us, to the church, how we are to approach and respond the plight of man and the struggle of man 
and the deficiency of man and the deterioration of man. Are we pointing people to a resolution? Now, I'm definitely not saying we don't confront sin. I am absolutely not saying that we are going to go silent in this world and never challenge sin. That is not what the word of God tells the church to do. We are the pillar and support of truth. And Jesus himself said that it's the truth that shall make you free. If we're not preaching truth, which confronts and challenges sin, then we're really helping nobody out. But if you're going to confront and challenge sin, we had better be ready to bring a solution. Because one without the other doesn't help anybody. It actually does more harm. His disciples asked him, who caused this? Why was this man born this way? Who sinned? I mean, they just went straight to this Jewish idea that sin or sin in a genealogical line causes these defects and causes these deficiencies from birth, which means this man didn't have a choice. This man didn't do anything that caused this. He came into this world this way. He came in with this ailment. He came in with this deficiency. And we, having the answer, look and point a finger and said, well, what did you do to get there? And some of us have even done it out of the righteousness and the goodness of our heart. What did you do to get here? Because I want to help you correct that. I want to help you fix that. But Jesus goes straight to the solution. He says, this has happened because God's work will be displayed in him. Can we look at people in struggles and deficiencies and trials and see something so broken, but yet see how God could be on display in that situation? Can we look at the brokenness that we see in our world? And as his people and as his church, respond in such a manner that we provide solutions. That we provide answers. He says in verse 4, we must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He's saying there's a time coming where we won't be able to provide a solution. It'll be too late. So while we can, we should be solution-driven, not problem-driven. Not just chasing around every problem and identifying problems. It doesn't take a degree. It doesn't take any level of a brain to be a problem finder. Anybody can find problems. You can live on the lowest of the low and find a problem. Find an issue. Find a struggle. But to bring solutions, to bring answers, to bring real hope and help and healing to a world that is deteriorating in a day and age where we know deterioration is going to grow. I know that there are certain things that we see nowadays that you don't ever want to become numb to, but there is an aspect of it that's like, we know this is only going to get worse. 
we know this is not getting any better. He told us, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But when we as Christians lock ourselves up in our palaces with our stained glass and sing our songs and hang out with our, our Christian buddies that think and look and act just like us, I'm afraid that we're not really on the path to bringing the solutions that we ought to be bringing to the world. I don't know about you. One thing that greatly disturbs me in all of this is nobody's asking the church what we should be doing right now. That bothers me. And I have to look internally. As a believer and as a pastor, as a shepherd of a church, and ask the heartfelt, challenging question, what have we done to tell the world we have no clue how to fix this? What have we done with Christianity when we are the very essence of hope? We are the only ones on the planet that can solve these solutions, and solve these problems and bring solutions. And they're bypassing us. In fact, the world wants to tell us what we can do. Don't be impressed when the world comes to you and says, will you, will you please pray? That's what they expect you to do. They don't for a moment believe that your prayers have any power. They just want you to exercise in your box and in your square what they think we should be doing. But if we speak up and challenge the status quo, and if we speak up and we challenge things according to the word of God. I mean, the last couple of months have been very eye-opening for how the church is expected to operate. And we want to shut churches down, and we want to shut down voices, and we want to quiet certain things and quell certain things from the one entity on the planet that has the power to solve all this mess and then wonder why it gets worse. Wonder why we're seeing atrocities that were just unthinkable just years earlier. But what has the church done to put off this image. These are disciples that are asking Jesus this. This isn't the world asking this. These are disciples. And it only gets worse. Verse 6 says, after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had been who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Isn't it interesting that no matter how much better we get sometimes, we still want to identify and define people by their ailment from before. Some people aren't pleased 
Some of you are trying to put on images and some of us are trying to, to, to look better and play the part. But we're only still being remembered by the brokenness from before. Isn't this the blind man? Isn't this the beggar? Some said he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. They don't even believe it's sitting right in front of them. No, that's just his twin brother that knows how to see. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? The man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he, they asked. I don't know. This blind man has received a supernatural miracle at the hand of God, at the hand of Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is not asking, how did you get here? Jesus isn't concerned with the sin. Jesus isn't concerned with what did your parents do. Jesus isn't concerned with, 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 with what are all the, what, what's your context? Jesus says, I have the answer. I've got the solution, regardless of where this came from, regardless of what causes, regardless of what is, is, is providing this ailment in your life. I've got an answer. I've got a solution for you. And he heals the man. In one of the craziest miracles we read about, he spit on the ground. Anybody want that miracle today? Nobody's running to the altar for that one. Uh, the anointing oil one is fine with me, please. Burger King anointing. Have it your way. I'll take the anointing oil with the side of being slain in the spirit. Verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind, used to be blind, used to be blind, to the Pharisees. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Oh, man, don't mess with the Pharisees and their Sabbath. Don't mess with the Pharisees and their principles. Don't mess with the Pharisees and their stuff and their routines and their systems. But, man, Jesus came to disrupt some systems. Jesus came to cancel some ideologies. Matthew chapter 15 verses 1 through 3, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and says, you have forsaken the commandments of God for your traditions, for your man-made ideas of the little box that you think God is going to work in, and I'm here to blow all that up. I'll spit on the ground on whatever day I want to spit on the ground, and I'll heal on whatever day I want to heal, and I'll heal however, whoever, whenever. Because God's not going to be put in a box of religion God doesn't keep our standards and our systems and our broken ideas of how we reach the world. The Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. I washed and I can see. I mean, this is simple. It's the third time he's had to cover this story. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep Sabbath. He doesn't follow our routine, so he must be a sinner. He must be a lost person, and a lost person can't do miracles like that. A lost person can't heal. 
But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Sound familiar? There was a division among them. A division, all of this over a miracle. All of this over a blind man receiving sight. All of this over brokenness becoming whole. All of this over loss becoming found. And we're arguing about what day the miracle took place. And we're arguing about who did it. There's no way that man is capable of doing that. Because see, Jesus broke the mold the day he was born. Because kings are typically born in palaces. And the Messiah definitely wasn't going to be forgotten and left outside of the hotel room and have to be born in some manger in the middle of a stall with animals surrounding. That's not the Messiah we're believing for. That's not the Messiah we're looking for. And so Jesus broke the mold. Before, they, before he could even talk, he was already disrupting people. Before he could even walk. Before he could even lay hands on somebody. Is already disrupting their concepts and their ideas. And the mold that they wanted to put him in. And this is the danger that we're in today. I believe the, the, the most dangerous thing that we are in today. We are in a crisis. And our crisis is a crisis of preference. This is the struggle of today. We are in a crisis of preference. We are in a crisis of what we want, when we want it, how we want it, who we want it through. Preference. These Pharisees were so moved with preference that they missed God's purpose. Our preference always, always compromises God's purpose. Our preference. I mean, if it were my preference, my wife would still be pregnant for about eight more weeks. If it were my preference. Our plans and our agendas and our ideas and, and, and we, we get stuck in things that lead us down a path where we are the only ones satisfied and we live in this prison of preference. We live in these prisons of what we want. These Pharisees were caught and captured in this prison of preference says in verse 18 that the Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight, until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. Look at the work they are going through to discredit and discount this miracle, rather than just celebrate, rather than just be excited. rather than fall to their knees worshiping and praising the one that delivered such a great miracle. 
They would rather go through all this research and all this history and all this work to discredit. They asked them, is this your son? The one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees. And we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. Now they're creating divisions and separations for anyone that claims that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah that Jesus claims to be. Anyone that falls in line with that, anyone that claims to be one of his, this is a very, uh, a very volatile situation. They're kicking them out of church. You're not a follower of our sect. You're not a part of our group. And this, this is the, the, the travesty is the division that this is causing over a miracle. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been born, uh, who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner, speaking of Jesus. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind. <laughs> now I can see. That man disregarded my past. That man put aside my history. So I don't care where he came from. I don't care where, where you say he's from or who he is. I was blind, I can see. See, when, when you get touched by God, when you receive a real miracle by God, you're not concerned with, with how it was done and who notices and who's around and who gets the credit. You're, not con you're saying, man, I was lost, now I'm saved. I was on drugs, now I'm free. I was addicted to porn, but now I'm free from that. I'm in a healthy marriage. I, I, this, no, none of that junk is going to hold me back. He didn't hold my past against me. I'm not going to hold his. All I know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I mean, they are working hard. Working hard doing this research. I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? He's getting a little feisty. Yeah. To the religious leaders of the law. I mean, we're not just talking about just anybody. We're talking about the, the leaders of this, this day and age. His response identifies you're chasing the wrong thing. You're trying to create division and you're trying to create 
a, a, a travesty where there is none. I was blind, now I see. And rather than you celebrating the miracle and celebrating the man, you're chasing me down doing all this research trying to find out who this man is, where he came from. They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciple. But we're Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But this man, we don't know where he's from. In fact, if you go back to chapter 7, they confronted him. And they didn't believe that he was the Messiah because he came from Galilee. Nothing good comes out of Galilee, especially Nazareth. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, when he first found out about Jesus and found out that he was from Nazareth, he responded and said, Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And you want to discredit the Messiah because of the town he's from. Yeah, this, this, the stuff we're seeing today, it's not any different. You know, Jesus took on one of the greatest moments of prejudice when he met with a woman, Samaritan woman, at a well. And she discredited him and discounted him because he was a Jew and Samaritans and Jews didn't have dealings with one another. Prejudice just simply means to prejudge. That's what prejudice is. Prejudice means to prejudge, means I come to a conclusion about you before I know anything about you. And I'll use all the indicators that I want to determine what I think about you and what you're capable of and what you can do. That's prejudice. People have prejudice against people with money because they don't have any. People have prejudice against people with education because they have none. We have all kinds of prejudice. We prejudge the way we think people are or the way they're going to be or the way they're going to act or what they're going to do or even what their potential can be because of external indicators. They used an external indicator, the man's born blind, to try to reveal the inside of the man. So they ridiculed him. They said, you're that guy's disciple. You're Jesus' disciple. We're Moses' disciple. Verse 30, this is an amazing thing, the man told him. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Now look at this in verse 32. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. And look at this verse 34. You were born entirely in sin. And you're trying to teach us? And they threw him out.
Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, that means Jesus went looking for him. He didn't just happen to pass by him this time. He didn't just happen, oh, hey, you, I, I remember you. You're the blind, blind guy. I healed you. How you doing? How's that eyesight? 2020 yet? You seeing everything? Got all your colors down? You pick out the alphabet? No, he went looking for the guy. He said, they did what? I'm going to go find this guy. And he sought him, went after him. And he asked, do you believe in the son of man? He says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Man, you talk about innocent. He doesn't even know that the man that just healed him is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. A man that didn't even know who he was just moments ago. Falls down and worships the son of God. But yet these religious leaders, the ones that ought to have known better, Missed who he was. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? He said, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin." But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The title of my message is Blind Spots. Blind Spots. Blind Spots. We all have blind spots. Blind spots are a matter of perspective. Blind spots are a matter of what you can see and what you can't see. Typically, when you hear about blind spots, you hear about it in a driving analogy. I remember the very first car accident I ever got into. I was, I think I just turned 19 years old, leaving a, a restaurant with some friends, probably about 8, 30, 9 o'clock at night or so. Back in Fort Worth, Texas, I was at, um, I believe it was a birthday dinner. So it was right around my 19th birthday. And um, I was getting on the interstate. And my friend Bobby, who's now a Fort Worth police officer, was right in front of me. And I was driving my dad's car because my car was back at school. And so I was driving my dad's car and... My friend Bobby was in front of me, and I went to go around him. I'm not going to tell you how, uh, what we were trying to do or anything like that. We may or may not have been trying to race. We may or may not have been going beyond the speed limit. But 
without looking in the lane next jerk to the right, fake him out to the right and go around to the left. I went to go around him, kind of did this jerk to the right, fake him out to the right and go around to the left type thing. And in my blind spot, turned too late and there was a car in my blind spot. So I jerked back over what was going to get around him. But there was a car there, slam into him, came back over, I'm on top of him. Slam into him, spin out, hit the median, spin out again, and I'm just sitting there with a crumpled up hood. No airbag went off, thinking, what just, he's right, he's get a little bit of smoke, and something's leaking down underneath, and they're all like, go oh, get him out, and as soon as they get him out and pull away, the car explodes, and they go flying off, and they're never in, you know, nothing there. It's the first thing I thought, I'm hustling to get out, got out of the car, and the first thing my dad says when he's that, well, it looks like I'm getting a new car. Glad I could help you with that. Glad I could Move you in that direction. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, but blind spots are typically an accident. It's not a blind spot if it's intentional, because then it wouldn't be a blind spot. And we all have them. We all have blind spots in our perspectives. We all have holes in our perspective where I can't see it the way you see it, but you can't see it the way I see it. We all have these blind spots. And so it is a matter of perspective that we all strive to get beyond our blind spots. But these blind spots are built by this crisis of preference. And the more that I live by my preference, the more that my perspective is compromised. The more that I live by my preference, the more that my perspective is compromised. I greatly limit my ability to see it from someone else's angle when I'm constantly feeding my own, when I'm constantly feeding what pleases me, what I'm comfortable with, the way I want it to be done, how I want it to be done, when I want it to be done, who I want it to be done with and done through. These are the things that have to be challenged that Jesus did not come for your preference. In fact, preference might be one of the biggest things he came to destroy in our lives. And these Pharisees were so built around preference. You know, you will even enjoy things that are toxic as long as it's your preference. You know, you even become conditioned to things that are harmful when it's your preference. I mean, you think about the strictness. When you, when you see the life that Jesus was trying to bring versus the life that the Pharisees had, you're thinking, man, we're talking about no more killing of all this cattle? We're talking about the opportunity to be healed on a Sunday and I don't have to watch the clock and wait for Monday for Jesus to do a miracle in my life? You're talking about freedom. We're talking about being set free. But yet they wanted to stay in bondage because it was their preference. 
It was what they had grown accustomed to. It was what they had grown familiar with. It was what they had grown to identify with. And they said, this is the way we want it. And if it doesn't come this way, we reject it. We're living in a crisis of preference. This is what the Lord told me. When preference is my priority, diversity is my deficiency. When preference is my priority, diversity is my deficiency. And I'm not just talking about race, but I do believe that this is what this is grounded in. But we have so many preferences. I'm going to say this, and again, I understand as a pastor, one of the weightiest things as a pastor is to understand that what I say is not always what you hear. I understand that. Because as I'm speaking, it's going through a filter of experience, background, culture, history. I understand that. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. I'm not smart enough to talk to an Asian and a Spanish and a black and a white and a purple and a green and a Baptist and a spirit-filled and a, and, a, and a poor and a rich all at the same time on the same level and all of you get the same thing at the same time. I can't do that, but the Holy Spirit can. And if you don't set up the Holy Spirit in your life as your filter rather than everything else we want to balance what I'm saying off of, I can't do it. If you've put that on your pastors in the past, please go back and apologize to them because they can't do it. None of us are that smart. They couldn't give us enough seminary years to learn how to teach to that many different backgrounds and histories in one room at one time and all of you get it at the same time. This is why we need the Holy Spirit. And I believe it is time, high time, that we challenge the trendy church. And I understand that means something different to everybody in this room. But we have adapted to and allowed certain criteria into the church that tells us if we're effective or not. I don't believe the devil wants to shut down the church. I believe he wants to get us so busy doing the wrong thing that we think we're doing the right thing. I think he wants us measuring off of the wrong measurements. I think he wants to confuse us, deceive us, deter us, so we never fulfill the plan of God. And it's time to challenge the trendy church. What do I mean by that? I mean the church that appeals to you. When we allow preferences to creep into the church and we allow our ideas to creep into the church, we are set up for failure and we no longer can produce and bring the hope that we are called to bring.
And in America, we have lots of reasons for going to church, finding a church. I heard someone tell me a while back, it's now called, uh, you know, we used to call it church hopping back in, in, you know, when I was growing up. Now they call it church dating. It's like this speed dating idea. I'm going to go sit down at this church and see if there's a marriage there. When do we ever bring God into the equation? Where am I supposed to be? Where is my fit? The Bible tells me that I'm in the body, placed in the body as it pleases him, not me. Apparently, my preference is not of God's greatest concern when he's planting me somewhere. Apparently, that's not the the box on his checklist that he's trying to check off. Now, is this where they feel comfortable? Does it have enough people that look like them, sound like them? Does he sound like the pastor that they grew up with? I know for some of you, I'm not tall enough. I'm not loud enough. I'm not quiet enough. I'm not fast enough. I'm not short enough. I'm not quick enough. We go too long. We go too short. We play too much worship music. We don't play enough worship music. We meet too little. We meet too often. The lights are too bright, the lights are too dark. The music's too loud, the music's too soft. The churches are, the the chairs are too hard, the chairs are too soft. The foyer's not big enough. I'm saying this to you today as your pastor. The church is never going to be able to bring hope and help and healing to a world when we are the we are the, 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 the object of gratification. When we are the ones trying to be pleased, rather than how can I please my heavenly father? Where the world is yearning for what we have. And we sit here and we say, I can't go to church today because it's, I'm not even streaming online today. Because this is not for the world. I think with with our technology and our advancements and our, our broadcasting, that we are so focused on getting the word out that we're not even focused on, are we getting it out to the right people? We lose sight of who God has sent us to. We lose sight of what he's called us to do. This object of preference is crippling the church. But see, diversity crushes preference. Diversity crushes preference. You know, even... Even Paul wrote that there are a diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. Diversity of gifts, but the same spirit. Diverse, different. You know, there, are, there is a five-fold ministry. There are five-fold ministry gifts. Pastors, apostles, prophets, teachers, and evangelists. And I bet you, out of one of those five that I just named, you thought of which one was your favorite. 
Some of you knew, some of you in here love preachers. You love it when they're loud and sweating and spitting and going and the organs playing. But some of you love some teachers, man. Some of y'all love to sit back, take those notes. Man, I took a full notebook of notes today, Pastor, and keep, keep the teaching coming. I want to keep taking. Some of y'all love those prophets. Man, tell me a word. Give me a word. Give me, a, give me. Some of y'all love those apostles. Some of y'all love those evangelists, those fiery evangelists that are saving the world and they're getting people in and they're zealous about seeing people come out of darkness into light. They're passionate. But we need all of them. There's 12 gifts, nine gifts of the Spirit. I'm sorry, nine gifts. We need all of them. Nine fruits of the Spirit. We need all of them. Nothing in the Word of God tells us to go through and pick and choose which ones you want. Circle the three you like the most. Rank them in order from favorite to least favorite. He doesn't give us an application and says, okay, pick what kind of Christian you want to be. We got to go after all of it. And when we start picking and choosing in the church, guess what? We're going to start picking and choosing out there. Preference is not on God's agenda. How on earth are we going to ever reconcile man to man if we're not reconciling man to the Father? How do we believe we're going to bring man into a right relationship with one another and we don't even have this one right? Everything this way flows from everything this way. We need diversity. We need these blind spots to be acknowledged. These Pharisees were more blind than the blind man himself. Their spiritual blindness was more of a travesty than the man's natural blindness. The natural man was able to fall down and worship. The spiritual blind man rejected who he was, with eyes wide open, able to see the miracle take place right in front of them, but yet try to come up with all the evidence that what we just saw happen didn't happen. And that man is not who he says he is. Even though he performs the acts and performs the fruits and he's fulfilling prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. I mean, it's not like God just sprung the Messiah on them. We've got a whole Old Testament that's got prophecy after prophecy and word after word of who Jesus is and what he's going to do and who he's going to be. And they still ignored it because that's spiritual blindness at the core of rejecting what I see right in front of me. They, remi- they remained spiritually blind. He said there in verse 41, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you have, or now that you say we see, your sin remains. He's helping them understand that by you saying, no, I get it. 
you don't. By saying, no, I, I, it, what's in front of me is everything I need to see. You're missing it. But yet a naturally blind man is able to catch on to who he is, the son of God. Their arrogance and their pride, these Pharisees, they were beyond help. There's three types of people you can't help. There's three types of people you can't help. Cash it in, give it up, let God deal with them. You can't help people that don't know they need help. Can't help people that don't know they need help. You can't help people that don't want help. They don't even want it. And you can't help people that only want help their way. Preference. Yeah, they were waiting for a Messiah. They knew they needed a Savior. They knew that Jesus or that, they, that the Son of God was going to come. But they just didn't see it in the package that it was delivered. It didn't meet their criteria. It didn't meet their preference. And Jesus is trying to help us all to see in this day and age that the church, you and I have a responsibility. You and I have a responsibility and a part to play in all of this. If you can't handle social media and the news and it's getting all over you and it's moving you, get off of it. You don't have to have it. Can I get an amen there? You don't have to have it. You don't have to have the app. You don't have to have the phone. You don't have to have the computer. What's happening is you're being affected by the very thing you're supposed to be affecting. You're being changed from the outside what you should be changing from the inside out. You know, through the whole series that we just came through, I kept telling you, I kept saying, it's time for the church to rise. It's time for the church to rise. It's time for the church to rise. We need an awakening in the church, but it's got to start with us. We aren't here to point out everybody's problems. We're here to bring a solution to everybody's problems. But if we're stirring up the same strife and divisions in here that we're supposed to be healing out there, we offer nobody any hope. Denominations fighting denominations. Churches fighting churches, talking about churches. Yeah, that happens. I know people today that have a call on their life to be in ministry, but will not be in ministry and will not pursue ministry because of all the mess they've seen behind the scenes. I get it. I get it. Some of you have been hurt in churches. You might be grinding through these services thinking this thing doesn't have any hope for me. There's no pastor out there that really loves me. There's no church member that really cares about me. They just want my money. They just want my tithe. They just want me to serve with the babies all the time. They just want me to do this and want me to do that. They don't really care about me because of a past experience, because of history.
When I only desire my preference, I limit my perspective. Worship team, if you come. I promise I'm not angry, but I am disturbed. Promise I'm not mad, but I am passionate. Because if we don't do it, who will? The government? The president? Race leaders? The economy? They just handed out money to everybody in the United States and we still got problems. But we, we can solve this. I said we can solve this. Will you stand up with me? We can solve this. If you'll take this seriously today, We can solve this. I'm tired. Naturally, mentally, physically. I could have sat this out. But this word was too heavy on my heart. If your heart doesn't break over this stuff that's happening in our nation, please get a check with your Heavenly Father. We sit idly by. Do I know exactly what to do? No, I don't. But I know the one that does. But in the church, it's time to challenge some things. I'm not responsible for every church in this community, in this nation, in this world. I'm responsible for this one. I've been given stewardship over this one. I will stand before him one day on your account, on account of leading you and guiding you and shepherding the flock according to the word. We got a lot of work to do. We have the solution. Every parent in this place, you can raise your children to reveal the heart of the Father to every person they come into contact with. My son, right now, is laying in a bed next to a baby that looks completely different than him. And in their rawest form, they don't know. You have to teach the garbage that we're seeing in our world today. They have to learn that. That is not natural. 
seen, seen you move. Come on, he's done it before, guys. He's done it before. has to go in the name of Jesus. Satan, you've had your hand on this nation long enough. But as the church, as a saint, as a child of God, and a kingdom citizen, by my authority given to me by Jesus Christ himself, I speak against the spirit of fear. I speak against the spirit of hatred. I speak against the spirit of of lust. I speak against these spirits in the name of Jesus. They have to die and go. We will not stand by and watch any longer. We take our rightful place for for the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. We declare mercy. We declare the goodness of the Lord. We declare that the Father's love will be revealed like never before. We declare peace. We speak peace in the name of Jesus. Father, we go from here as your agents, your agents of change, your citizens, to confront the works of the enemy and to reveal the works of God. We are your people. We are your children. We are your vessels for your honor give you glory, praise, and honor. In Jesus' name.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast today. We trust you received a word from God. If you enjoyed this teaching, be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. By subscribing, you'll be sure to receive a new message every week as soon as they are made available. And if you'd like to learn more about Anchor Faith Church, you can stop by our website at anchorfaithaboutaustin.com. There you'll find our locations and service times, ministries that are available for you and your family. You can even give financially in support of the ministry. Thank you again for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time right here on the Anchor Faith Church podcast.